This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, Steve is taking the lead and he's going to teach me once again. This is his third time and I believe this is episode 13. Oh, we're almost there. 14 is next. What, what happens at uh, number 14? Then we suddenly become better than half of the podcasters out there because we've reached the median number of episodes. Yeah, so apparently... Then the, we'll, be, we'll just be better than them. The average number of podcasts someone puts out is 14. Yeah, no, sorry, the median, not the average. Okay. Yeah, because the the winners are going to be like hundreds or thousands of episodes, like Joe Rogan's on a couple thousand. That would skew the average then. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So let's just say... So the median is 14. Of people who put out podcasts, most don't go beyond 14. Yep. Okay. So once we hit 14, then we'll be average, and then one more, and... Better. And we can stop. We'll stop. We'll stop. See, we we could follow through enough... That we can say we're better than most people at following through on podcasts, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have that forever. Anyway, we, uh, just all completely unrelated. (laughs) What is the topic today, Steve? See, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. So uh, this is what happens when Phil's not talking all the time. Phil's not leading. Leading. Well, I lead from behind. And I think that's a, that's a concept we can talk about at some point. Because it is something we should talk about. Also, I, I am Phil and he is Steve, just yes. to be clear, because we, we, we did it right last time, but this time we forgot again. Yeah, we forgot again. Okay, so uh, my name is Phil Lachey. I am working on a D&D website. You can go to makeaskillcheck.com to check that out. I'm also writing stories for young adults and adults at this time. And my name is Steve Rose, and I write about mental health and addiction on my website. I also work as a counselor. And uh, rogue academic of sorts, I guess you can say. Yeah. Perhaps. Can I call myself a rogue academic? Sure. Sure. Why not? Why not? Let's do it. I'm sure there's no official board to come after me for that title. No. No, they won't come after you. Great. So, So today we're talking about the concept of transitional stress. Mm. This is actually something that is fundamental to my own academic history. It's... Uh, the topic of my dissertation. I referred to it originally as transitional trauma, but then the psychologist on my committee suggested that that word has specific uh, diagnostic connotations that I should probably not uh, bring in. So I changed it to transitional injury, but uh, you can also call it transitional stress. And so that's that's what we're talking about today. Wait, so... Are you saying that transitional stress and transitional injury are the same thing? One seems like it would lead to the other. It's the same thing, pretty much. Just different different words. And for the purposes of today, let's just say transitional stress. Okay. I mean, it seems odd to me that you would throw another label onto something that's the exact same, that already exists. But I, I think we can firm this up a bit, because I think it sounds... Like, I, I can guess what these things are. What do you think? Both sound distinct to me. Okay, so transitional stress, if I had to guess, would probably be very related to loneliness and a lot of that, because when you're switching to a new stage of life or a new situation, it seems like there'd be a lot of stress having to deal with and adapt to all the new things that are happening. Because you're going from probably a more stable situation to a very unstable and maybe without supports situation. Mm-hmm. And that stress could lead to transitional injury, whatever, however you define that. Similar to, I think, a concept you've introduced me to called um, moral injury. 
So uh, to me, it seems like one would lead to the other. Right. But I don't know what these are, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, I guess functionally you can say that stress is the, the your, your inability to adapt and it causes stress on your system or, or psychological health. But then the injury would be something that's that's a, perhaps a result of the stress. And now you have almost a, like a, a chronic state of suffering beyond just the acute stressful event. And so that, that's, that's perhaps a, a fitting way to frame this. Very good. It actually makes me think of uh, the psychological models for mental health. The, there's two, if I remember them correctly. One is called the diathesis stress model, and the other one is the... Oh, shit. I can't remember what it's called. But it's the diathesis stress model. It means that... I, th- I think this is the one where you have a certain genetic predisposition for something, and then, like, imagine a cup. And you have to fill the cup till it's overflowing to get the full-blown disorder, to make it simple. And your genetics fills it up to a certain point, and then stress, temporary stress. But if there's enough of it, it will make the cup overfill, overflow, and then you can manifest either temporary or full-blown lifelong mental health issues. Is it similar to that? Right, I guess that makes kind of that makes sense because you, I guess everyone has a, an adaptive set point, almost like a thermostat, like a genetic predisposition, and then something can push it over the edge and, and cause a, a long running maybe uh, issue. Maybe an elastic is a good metaphor because you can stretch it so far, and the elasticity depends on your genetics. But then once it's been pulled too far, it just snaps and it, it will not go back. Right, exactly, and that's the, without intervention. That's kind of like what the nature of trauma would be it's the overwhelming lack of control in a situation that could be potentially affect your your life and it your your psychological state snaps we we talk about PTSD as being what this is and, and when you look at veterans in transition to civilian life what's the biggest psychological label thrown around it's PTSD post traumatic yep yeah my goal in the dissertation was to almost debunk this this uh, constant knee-jerk psychologizing because if if you don't know i didn't do a phd in psychology i did it in sociology and so the, uh, the fundamental thing that i was studying was the social context and and not necessarily the brain like you would study in psychology so i was questioning is ptsd relevant for everyone wait who's struggling? Hold, hold on i'm just gonna say just, just the brain that's that's all psychology studies okay uh, not just the brain <laughs> okay continue. But you know what i mean i gotta i gotta heckle you a little bit you know what i like the heckling i, I told you that we should probably do some more heckling in this so yeah so i keep, did it even though it's pedantic heckling keep it up we gotta we gotta live up to our intro quibbling we quibble over ideas so more quibbling, I say. And so when you psychologize something, it tends to individualize it. What does that mean? Well, you, you say the problem is on the individual and you treat the individual. That's where the counseling profession comes from. That's what I work in right now. And it makes sense. We're not going to try to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We, we need to keep counseling and psychology and all the rest of it. But overgeneralizing these things to everything is a psychological problem. It misses a big piece of what was actually going on with veterans in transition to civilian life. Because PTSD assumes war is bad, it's traumatic, civilian life is good. Therefore, when you come back and you're struggling, it must be because of that bad war stuff. Because civilian life is great, it's easy. Yeah, it's not the, the enemy of civilian life. What's that mean? Isn't are you asking me just to explain it? Because I'm pretty sure you know. 
And I mean, I, if I remember correctly, it's the kind of moralist society where if you have an anomic society, if you're breaking social mores, people will, or social rule, people will not do anything about it. Like, if, for instance, I, I felt very anomic in China because it's a very much, there's too many people, you can't intervene all the time. And it's just basically the rule of, of the land typically is it's not my problem. And so if, say, a man is beating a woman in public, they might not have anybody intervene because it's not their business. And I've had friends that did intervene at times and they got yelled at by the woman to go away. So like an anomic society in that way, it's just, it kind of feels depressing and purposeless and there's nobody reinforcing social norms. Exactly. So everyone's out for themselves, high individualism. And you got ahead of me, but that's exactly it. We, we, we don't question civilian life. We just unquestionably think it's great. All the problems with veterans must be from war. But when I interviewed uh, these Canadian veterans, they came up with something like, although war is hell, it's not to diminish how bad war is, civilian life can be worse. When you hear that for the first time, you think, What? How is that possible? And you you kind of got ahead of it right there, and that's exactly it. You're coming from a highly collectivistic military uh, situation where everyone has a sense of belonging and purpose, and then your mistakes are very high. Mistakes are very high. You're doing something that's on the world stage, importance, life or death, and then you're coming out of that into relative purposelessness and isolation in civilian life. Atomization, exactly. And so, although you may suffer from PTSD. This is more than just a psychological problem. It's a social problem. The transition itself is injurious, let's just say. That's, that's where I came up with the, the concept of transitional trauma or transitional injury and, or stress because it's that transition itself that is the problem, not necessarily what happened that was traumatic in combat. There, there may or may not have been a traumatic experience in combat for that injury to happen. It's, it's not necessary uh, that it occurs. You can have someone that was working in relative safety and office work. There was no real traumatic situations that happened with them when they were serving. And then they have this experience of, of transitional uh, stress. And so that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm wondering though, so a couple of things. First, I may be misremembering this. Maybe you can clarify, but I remember, I don't remember if it was number of suicides or number of PTSD, but the rate was fairly high, even for people who had never seen action, like never been in combat. Yeah. Do you remember which one that is? Is it a suicide or was it PTSD? Uh, I believe it's suicide. Yeah. Right. And also, I guess I, the other question I had to lead from here is, do you think this is mainly going from collectivist to individualists? Do you think it's going from purpose to no purpose, do you think it can also apply to, say, moving to another country? Exactly that. And so the, the concept that I was going to bring in to explain some of this would be reverse culture shock. We think we know about culture shock when you go to a different culture. It's, mm. well, Hold on, though. What's that? Culture shock is actually more complicated because the conventional understanding that I had going into China Tell me about was it. incorrect. There's actually four stages of culture shock. The fourth one is reverse culture shock. Okay, so you're, you're probably the better one to explain the culture shock element of this. Yeah, probably, given that I've experienced far more of it. I've, I have never experienced it, really. No, you have. You have, definitely. Going to the States or going to Lebanon or wherever you've gone, uh, you've entered stage one. So stage one, culture shock is usually uh, amazement or being impressed with the differences, seeing like, oh, they do it so differently here. That's so neat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's stage one. Yeah, I got it. So that's usually what people go in with. They're like, yeah. this is amazing. Oh, so good. Yeah. 
then uh, stage two is when reality starts setting in and things start to get a bit more frustrating and you're like, ah, these things, why, why can't they do it the way that we do it? Like this doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like when Europe, why can't they, uh, why can't you flush your toilet paper? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like in Europe, you, what do you mean in Europe? You have to put, you can't you there either? No, you can't flush your toilet paper in a lot of parts of Europe. You're supposed to put it in the waste bin. Oh, in Asia, that's how it was. But yeah, I, I didn't know that was also. I'm sure in Eastern Europe, for sure. I figured like likely England and when I when I say Europe, I'm, I'm talking about the places I've been to. Uh, so Greece was that way. Greece. I think Portugal. I know Lebanon. So well, I mean, Lebanon technically it's Asia. That's yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I would hesitate to say anything about all of Europe. All of your, Europe, your, your and my limited my experience. Like they, they do not see each other as a uh, monolith. No, 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 no. So I, I'm not well traveled. So that was the second stage of my culture shock. Was it was like, oh, why, why is this the case? Like, uh, this is I don't like this idea. Yeah. Okay, so apparently I just looked them up. There's um, the first stage is the honeymoon stage I mentioned. The second stage is the frustration mm-hmm. stage where you're like, ah, this thing doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And then the third stage is apparently getting adjusted. And the fourth stage, I've heard the fourth one is reverse culture shock because the third is like basically you've adapted so that you mostly speak that language. You have friends. You know how the institutions work. The institutions part is the big frustration in number two because like China, for instance, banks, they would hide your name at an ATM they would start out so that you can only see one character to be somebody who looking over your shoulder wouldn't see who you are except they only did that assuming that everyone had three character names so my name would be star 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 a Philip so like it's got most of my name still there because it's only starring out the first two or three characters the third stage I say is acceptance and adjustment and that's how you're just in with that culture becomes the new normal yeah and then the last stage is optional it's when you go back to your original country and you're like, what the hell? Why do we do this like this? Like my frustration with not being able to drink in public, for instance, or in Canada, only being able to buy beer or liquor at the liquor store. I don't even drink that much, but those were nice to haves. Right. And so we don't often think of reverse culture shock. We think uh, culture shock as we go somewhere. It's so different. And, and how do I drive on the other side of the road, for example? But uh, the, the experience of reverse culture shock can be significant and disorienting and and perhaps isolating in some strange weird way because everything looks the way it used to look but there's something that feels slightly off and it could it could you're saying reverse culture shock or just culture shock yeah reverse culture shock you come back Mm -hmm. to a place you're so familiar with and like this was very familiar not too long ago and it looks weird now and it can be very disorienting for people you may want to ask me a question about this i i i don't need to ask your opinion i have experienced this many times (laughs) yeah right so when i went to bc to live (laughs) are you serious yeah i experienced this living in the mountains in bc coming back for how long again remind me a couple months two months yeah and yeah. coming back to live in the flatlands of Ontario, it was a very weird experience of coming back into the, the flatness and, and blandness that is southwestern Ontario. And there, you know, there's little things here and there, but that's what reverse culture shock is. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm really trying hard not to gatekeep this. 
What do you mean? That it's almost laughable that going from one part of a very monoculture, fairly monoculture <laughs> society to another part of that same damn society for two <laughs> months and you go back to your home, which is still in the same damn country, is culture shock. I'm sorry. It's not quite the same beast, but I'm sure you, you dipped your toe. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 gatekeeping, I'm not allowed to experience culture shock. It's only you. The I one. said I'm trying hard not to. I just said you dipped your toe. Yeah, you have okay. a taste of it. Yes. Okay. okay. So let's let the well-traveled vagrant speak. Even I am hesitant to say that I've fully experienced it because I have not been that long gone. I came back once a year. Uh, like I went to Australia for six months and there was a bit of a culture shock from that a little bit, but not not so much because they're not that different. And I would say they're more different between Canada and Australia than it is from the West Coast of Canada and Ontario, Canada. But I was there for six months and it was interesting but it was a much bigger shock coming back from China because I actually had to stop myself from walking up to cashiers and saying ni hao because that's how I would just automatically do it because that's what they would speak and a bunch of other stuff and like ah being able to flush toilet paper was really nice it's such a surprisingly small thing another thing was being able to use the internet again on the one hand you you miss certain things like getting things delivered there was very very cheap uh anything to do with people was very very cheap so like getting a massage you can get a massage for like 20 bucks for an hour deep tissue massage hurts so good but then here it's like 60 dollars for a half hour sometimes or more so like the price difference differences and just the fact that you could see old people hanging around in parks and seemingly enjoying themselves and a bit more community a lot of time is there's upsides and downsides of both. And then you come back and you hear people complain about Canada. This is kind of what I talked about before. I've alluded to it several times of making complaints about Canada with no real context. They've never really left and thinking they, they know exactly what, how to fix this country when they have not seen any other system operate. That, that kind of stuff just kind of like irks you a bit, just the, the small mindedness of these things or just the ignorance, I guess. Not that they mean necessarily bad and not to like denigrate their opinion, but it's just not informed enough, I guess. Just, ah. I, I find it more interesting to talk about the actual culture shock of being abroad because that, that that feels related, but I'll throw it back to you now. Yeah. And so the reverse culture shock, did you feel like it was somewhat isolating at all? Did you feel a lack of excitement and purpose? Yeah. Cause my cousin actually put it well okay. when he said that when people ask you how things were for you, it was a life changing experience. Like going to Australia for six months was the first time I left the country on my own and as an adult. And it was for a long time and I came back and my worldview had shifted substantially and then I come back and almost nothing has changed. Like I feel like I've seen things with a completely new light, but then I come back and it's almost like no like people have maybe made like half a step forward in whatever they were currently progressing in. Maybe there's like a new shop, maybe a shop closed down, but pretty much everything is the same. So it just feels like you, you do time traveled almost where like you left, you did a whole lifetime of experience and you came back to the same time you left at or like a couple weeks afterwards. That's how it feels. And when you try to talk to people, people ask you where my cousin's wisdom came in. They say like, how was the trip? All they want to hear is good. They don't want to hear anything else. You were amazing. It was amazing. You saw so many cool things. You met a lot of cool people. They don't care. This is including family a lot of the time. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to get at here is the isolation of like them not relating. It's, it's an isolation and a disorientation in that you come back and your whole world is revolutionized and changed and you've just had so much growth in your perspective, but everything else here is like molasses. Mm. Like, wait a minute, this is weird because I'm not the same me that left, but everyone else is the same. It's kind of like the hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. You went off to uh, the hero's 
whatever they do, the struggle, you overcome the struggle. Well, you, you have to leave home and, and do perform some acts yeah. and come back changed better for it and able to take on whatever the problems are in your own setting, yeah. I guess. Exactly. So that, that hero's journey comes with another hero's journey. You can be home and not quite feel at home. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Huh. I don't entirely feel home here now. What's, frankly. What's, what's your experience with that? I don't have a base. I don't have a solid place. And I, I think that a lot of renters can probably relate with this, but it's slightly more than that because it just feels like this is a, a this is a temporary skin I'm kind of wearing here as a Canadian in my own country. It feels odd because I'm just used to being an outsider. And I guess now I feel like an outsider here as well because people can't relate with the perspective I have and their perspective is just fixated on the narrow of their city or the, the province or the country and they don't have much experience outside of that. Like if we do travel somewhat, but like Europeans actually criticize us a lot for being normally, specifically Americans, but they criticize North America quite a bit, unfairly, in my opinion, for not being cultured because like here we get two weeks first we only get two weeks of vacation if you work full-time supposing you can afford to travel which is usually in that calibration so then you would be too exhausted to go on like an actual cultural trip and it would you only have that time to do it you can't take a weekend trip to mexico because i mean you can but it's just uh, it's a lot of transit for the amount of time you get out of it if you want to go to europe that's a six-hour flight at least hey you get to have one night so you have super <laughs> jet lag and then you come back whereas europeans they can take a weekend trip to a number of countries around them just driving a lot of the time so they're obviously going to be more experienced with comparing cultures so we don't really get that with that usually people here just travel to say a resort in mexico or cuba or somewhere because it's cheap and they just kind of use it as a like a a country spa in a way Mm -hmm. which is fair if you only have that much time but it doesn't really expand your awareness they don't and i try to pitch that but then people see it as work and they just don't want to do any so and i can kind of relate with that too i guess right so you feel disconnected with people in the realm of your ideas and perspectives and when you try to talk about it, they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to think about travel as, as uh, life changing. I want to just go drink some beer. I'm sit on a beach. Yeah. I just got to decompress. Whereas travel in the past, this is a quote, or I can't remember the quote, but it's, I got it from the four hour work week. He quoted somebody where it was before the invention of tourism, travel used to be seen as a form of education. And I very much think it's extremely valuable for that because it's not education like the boring kind of classroom sense. It's more you're there, you're interacting with people, you get to see how cool things are done. And as long as you're taking that perspective, you can learn a lot of things. And I think with the reverse culture shock, I was forced into even more of an outsider perspective on our own stuff. And so I will ask seemingly stupid questions about why do we do this this way? And the answer often is just, we just do and nobody questions it. And because you have this kind of, I guess, beginner's mind uh, from Buddhism, you're kind of viewing things from a novel perspective where people here just see it as is. Right, exactly, yeah. And so you, you've had this experience of coming home but not really feeling at home in a sense. Coming home physically. Physically, yeah. but not mentally. Right, but like mentally, I don't know where my home is, frankly. Yeah. So geez. maybe that's that's a downside to it. And what is home? You know, this idea, because it's very interesting to talk about with you because we're so opposite as we keep bringing up throughout our conversations. Yeah. We've, we've commented, we've commented how we, we might, people might not see why we are friends. Yeah. It makes no sense really, <laughs> except for we're super idea nerds, but I think that's for the only, the only area really. But otherwise 
I'm very much about kind of having solid roots with family nearby at a particular home, literally owning a home as well. A house. But this idea... We need to make a distinction here. Yes, there's a, you can own a house. They call it a homeowner. You get the idea here. Right, but we, I mean, you, you want to talk about home versus a house, and yes. so I'm making that distinction. Yes, exactly. And you can, so you can feel at home even if you're renting. Technically. It doesn't have to be your home. But there's a difference there. There's... There's a, a rootedness to all of this. And uh, I, I quoted uh, an author from the 1940s, 1944. He wrote a book called Homecoming, when he's talking about veterans coming back home. And he compared it to Homer's Odyssey and Homer's transition, his, his transition back home. And he defines home in this book as... Uh, quote, to feel at home is an expression of the highest degree of familiarity and intimacy. Life at home follows an organized pattern of routine. It has well-determined goals and well-proved means to bring them about, consisting of a set of traditions, habits, institutions, timetables for activities of all kinds. And this is kind of just this cozy, nice definition that which you can probably see why I resonate with it, being the the hedgehog the creature of habit, the hedgehog type I am. I like to burrow, burrow down and and feel comforted by these types of things. When I describe this concept of home to you, what are your thoughts? I guess. Because it, because it's tied in institutions, I can't really count any of my time in China. I guess I have like had fleeting homes at times because I was technically kind of institutionalized in a way with the the English school I was at because they were your main support and your family away from home. Mm. Or when I was studying Mandarin in, in Beijing, it was a lot more routine based, and I could turn to the institutions somewhat. There, honestly, the bureaucracy there is just so out of control and annoying. It was almost impossible. Anytime you'd engage with them, it was just super frustrating. So that's why I, I'm hesitant to say it was like home because after traveling or being here, I would feel away from home, and then when I would go back to my routines there, then I would feel more home-like. I guess right now, though. I guess it just kind of all feels temporary and tenuous because nothing is permanent for me. And what I usually seek are relationships that I can take with me and keep in contact with. So to be friends with me requires almost that you're either willing to have phone calls and not video because I kind of hate that, but willing to be able to have long distance, slow conversations over text. And a lot of people I find they can be great in person, but then they are not good at conveying their, their personality over text. And those ones I tend to not stay really in touch with. So I've got, I guess, a network of people who are similarly adrift in the world and right. don't have that home sense, maybe. So, and, and that's even yeah. our relationships. We, ne we actually never see each other in person. And I think people might get the wrong impression by listening to this recording, the way we've crafted it. It sounds like we're in the same room in like a recording studio of some sort. So people have said, yeah. Yeah. And so we're actually quite a long ways off. I'm, I'm in Windsor, Ontario area and you're in Toronto. And I'm in Toronto. Yeah. Which is kind of close technically, but it's, it's a three a few, or four hour drive. I yeah, think. Yeah. But we actually only see each other like once or twice every couple of years in person. You know? Every year usually, but the pandemic less, but yeah, like once or twice, even though I've actually been in country. Yeah. And so uh, our conversations are highly fluid and remote and text based primarily. And I guess we don't even talk a whole lot. This podcast is really our kind of excuse to, to, to do voice calls. So that's, 
That's interesting. We used to do it a lot more. When I was in China, we would do it fairly often when you were driving a lot and I was walking around. Yes, yes. I'd have long drives and we'd be in opposite schedules. So it worked out. Found time. We used our found time to talk to each other when it lined up. So the whole point of this is that your home is very fluid and it's in your relationships that are, are distant. And I think we've talked about that you are really, really good at networking and staying in touch with people. Even if you don't realize it, you really nurture relationships with people. And perhaps would that be your version of home in a sense? Are these particular relationships? Well, like I was saying in the last episode, we were, which we recorded today, the last episode, I was saying how friends, the institution of friends is probably stronger for me than you because you, you've really cut out a lot of the, the, the relationships that are more loose for you. For me, I guess the practice I tend to do is, well, for one, I try to avoid the thinking that like, if they care, they would have messaged me because people think that all the time and I don't think you're not messaging them. No, not you, but I just mean people. And the fact is you're not messaging them either. So it goes both ways. So for me, I guess I, if I think of somebody or something makes me think of them, I might reach out. (laughs) And even if we're not that that close, we actually get closer because I do that sometimes. And then they are more willing to reach out to me in the future as well. And then we catch up and then we might stop talking for a few months. And it just, I have a lot of kind of looser friendships in that way that have been very helpful both ways. And I guess it makes sense because my version of home is institutionalized in more traditional means of, I guess, home ownership, family, uh, extended family, and uh, all the rest of it. Those kind of more habitual patterns of living versus your version of home tends to be more found in those fluid relationships. Mm, Yeah. Mm, yeah, pretty much a lot of the time. And there's a bit of a he- hesitancy of like, do I even have a home? What is home? Do I need it? Do I need a home? I mean, okay, so like when we we're talking about last episode about how I'm mildly concerned with a random errant idea taking root and making me go basically off the edge of sanity. You said that I'm concerned about that, but it makes it seem like I'm actively concerned. The thing is, being diving into a bunch of random areas, you find a lot of things to be concerned about uh, with the world. And really, it's kind of like a, a Rick Sanchez, Rick and Morty approach to things, which is don't think about it. It's just it is a concern to keep a pin in and check in on every once in a while, like say AI or like international war threats or the environment. Just like, what, what can you do about it? So you just kind of have to be like, okay, well, let's just focus on what's what's here now and how we can we improve it. So I guess that's kind of maybe why I'm, I'm aiming for the, the land co-op project because it will be a stable base. I, I'm looking to build a kind of stable home base where I can come back to whenever I want. It will be welcoming and there will be people there that I, I want to spend time with and they can come with me to places optimally and we could just like rotate bases around the world. And that sounds pretty appealing to me. Right, exactly. So there is this yearning for something more stable or home-like, in a sense, even though it's not the, the tra- tra- traditional definition of the, like the nuclear family home. You're finding that in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the thing is it's about community in this way, because it's like I have a community internationally, but it's kind of... Like I'm the central node and a lot of them are not connected. They don't know each other. And I wouldn't mind one where I see them interacting and we can hang out in person. And like, cause obviously that's, it's not the same talking on phones to people. And uh, I think another thing that I the, the physical home part is also something that is undervalued a lot of the time. Cause I have a lot of hobbies that I like to get into. Um, 
I am very curious about many things and I want to know how to do everything. So I require a bunch of space for equipment, say like brewing equipment or whatever, whatever hobby there is, there's, there's going to be some sort of equipment or something to go with it. And you need space to work on stuff, but if you're constantly moving, you, you just can't own those things. Like in China, I just, I wanted to have a guitar to play music and I never did because I, why bother buying a guitar when I'm going to have to get rid of it in, I don't know, a year or two. So I just, I just didn't. And I would just forego a lot of things that I, I would like to dive into because the equipment itself is just it's too much. Exactly. And, and that's, that's why I really love my situation and the ability to, to have the physical space. Like I, like for example, I have oh, an yeah, office. Rub it in. <laughs> I, you know what? That is why I love my setting. I have what you want. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> it's great. You should try, you should try being a little bit more institutionalized. Yeah, you know, just uh, get a PhD and a full-time job built off of a long time of effort on your own website. Okay. (laughs) Do I sense some resentment? I mean, I am... I'm torn because like on the one hand, I'm resentful about full-time employee people because like I, I wish, I mean, these are the ones that I'm assuming they can go home and not have to think about work. The ones I'm jealous of the most are you go, you clock in, you do your work and then you leave and you forget about it. Uh, as I hear is becoming less and less common, but those people I kind of both envy and resent maybe like a kind of sour grapes. Like I mentioned in the past, I'm glad that it didn't happen like that because it pushed me to get more creative and figure things out more. And it seems like that's working out for me now. It's not in your nature to do that. It'd be comfortable, but for someone like you who's just highly creative. Yeah, you would. Yeah, I would, I would definitely be railing against the, the cage of the situation, which I have <laughs> when I had that in, in the past. No, seriously. Like, I imagine a caged animal. That's how I feel in that context, because yeah. you, you, there's no room for, for variation. You're just stuck with this grind. And it just, so like, that's what I mean. Like, on the one hand, I'm a little bit envious. On the other hand, I'm just like, ugh, because I just, what I'm longing for, I think, like most people, is just to not constantly feel the the strain of economic stress. Because to constantly be like, oh god, I gotta, I gotta make ends meet and make make sure that I've got like, savings, so that like, because like pensions are probably not going to really be a thing for me or a lot of people in our generation. So it's just. <sighs> On the one hand, I'm jealous of the, the security in that way. But on the other hand, I also resent that thinking because like Office Space, the movie where they're like talking about how, oh, that job is terrible. But yeah, that, that job security, I mean, I'm kind of jealous of that. And it's like, why would you want to be locked into something that you hate? <laughs> exactly. Office Space, I still need to see that. Yeah, yeah you do. I never even heard of it really. Oh, it's amazing. Even though I've used the, I've used the meme for that movie. There's a meme apparently of like... The stapler? Um, something like, uh, I don't know. I forget. There's, there's memes. It's a popular movie and I haven't really. Yeah. And it's made by the guy. This is where I think he jumped on the stage. He's, it's a guy who made, um, King of the Hill too. Yeah. I gotta check that one out. So this, there we go. The office space, this kind of connects with stuff I've talked about actually with the veterans in my interviews of where are these people going after they leave the military? Got to get a, another job or you could retire technically because it's a really good pension, but uh, that can be depressing on its own and no purpose. And, and yeah, and that and so essential angst purposelessness. Yeah, exactly. So that's a problem in itself, but also you can't necessarily win because if you get a job, there's a high chance that you're probably not going to find a whole lot of purpose in it at least at least in the beginning uh, because you're coming from that environment where everything mattered life or death a sense of uh, connecting with the the others in your group and then you go into an office space where it's just 
bland and boring and disconnected. And somebody actually told me it's hard to care about the things you should care about in civilian life. I mean, I don't even care about those things a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> what things did they mention? But this is, I guess, I can relate, but not to the same degree because theirs was like, it's diff- it's you different. had purpose, you had direction, you had people constantly caring about you and literally having your life in their hands and theirs in yours. So you could see how that would bond you together so mm. much more quickly and be more intense and meaningful. Like it's the whole thing we're talking about Burning Man. Like there's something about us that we... We want a community that cares about each other and interacts with each other and doesn't use money. For some reason, using barter and trade seems to to be more holistic and bring people together. It's more personable because you have to kind of engage with them rather than just here's the, here's the cash, get out of my face. Like we kind of do a lot of the time in modern life. So it's it's all these things that we're kind of going back to this kind of like tribal, like our brains are still tribal in a lot of ways, but we're just, our technology is, what was it? Our, our reach has exceeded our grasp. Yeah. Yeah. And and that yearning for community is exactly part of this transitional stress as you're coming from uh, that that high bonding into the isolation, but also the the purpose element of it. Somebody actually told me this quote, it really highlights this. They said, quote, you're at the top of your game. You were doing something meaningful, relevant. You had focus. You had direction. You had support. You had camaraderie. It's like, God, what do I do now? Everybody's kind of sleepwalking through life here. There's no purpose. Nobody stands for anything. Life seems very shallow after that. Yeah, see, I very much relate with that. And I could tell, yeah. One of the things that's bothering me now is... Just the people's perspective on government. It's kind of like this whole neoliberal push that the pro- the answer to the problems is not government. The problem is the government, which is, I think, a Reagan phrase. But it's like, okay, we need to demand more from the government. But then people, when you talk about these things, say, ah, nothing will come from this. But don't bother. It's just a waste of energy. So it's just this learned helplessness. People are checked out. They, they hate the way things are, but they're just so beaten down or busy that they can't mm-hmm. be bothered to do anything or they think it's just fruitless and it's like why have we all given up we've been basically just trained to give up but this is not going to fix itself and so that's where i really with the last part where like people are sleepwalking and they don't seem to care and it's like when you have woken up enough to see that you're like my god what the what are we doing what is the point of this like that that quote i sent you god i gotta find that because it's so prescient on the topic where it was like they're dull and bored and Hold on, I can find it pretty quickly. It's so interesting that you can relate to a lot of this this military ethos. When I, I see you as really the exact opposite of a military person, like you would probably never join the military. It just doesn't seem no, I, I would in not nature fit. at all. <laughs> but the elements that it offers are things that we all desperately want and yeah, need and yeah. what we're basically seeking. The reason we try to achieve and get a really attractive mate and do all these things is because we're seeking these things. These are the things that actually make us happy. Connection, community, yeah. um, purpose, meaning, uh, whatever, in, in leisure, all in combination and productive work. And all those things are basically we're, we're alienated from those things. Like this is, I guess some people would say capitalism because like I was saying about building on the land, if I go and do work for somebody else, I build a, a structure because somebody paid me. I go home with cash. I don't really feel that great about it. I don't feel that accomplished. I don't feel like I did too much to, to better somebody's life. Maybe some rich persons, I guess. And I might, I mean, people might be resentful of that, but then if you build it yourself for yourself and you reap the benefits of your labor, it's much more meaningful. I found the quote, by the way, if, if you have space for me to insert it here. Sure. Okay, so this is a quote from the book 8020 by Richard Koch. Koch? Koch? Koch. Every time you say this quote, you mess up his name. Yeah, whatever. It's not even his quote. It's his, he's quoting another book, but it's an amazing book. Please read it. Please. Please. What's the 8020 anyway. rule? Okay. 
Yeah, and 92 other scientific principles that explain the world. Okay. It's basically this podcast, but in really condensed form. Ah, oh, so good. Anyway, <laughs> quote. <laughs> <laughs> quote in the average company the boys in the mailroom the presidents the vice presidents and the girls in the cinepool have three things in common they are docile they are bored and they are dull trapped in the pigeonholes of observation charts they've been made slaves to the rules of private and public hierarchies that run mindlessly on and on because nobody can change them end quote right fuck that's depressing yeah yeah people are sleepwalking through life here because we're in this system that doesn't want to change. It's like, even the people up top, like they don't seem to understand what, <sighs> until there's a serious crisis. And I don't think the pandemic has instigated a big enough one. It seems that like the country's actually in peril. It doesn't seem like they're actually going to wake up and it needs to change or else it, it will lead to that. We are headed towards that, the West and like the enemies of our countries, which do exist, that wish us not good things. They are definitely doing what they can to tip the scales in the favor of chaos. Right. Yeah, it's just... It's, it, uh, that's neither here nor there. It's such an interesting overlap between this conversation, which we had in our episode on internalized capitalism. If you're interested in learning more about this particular thing, uh, we, we really explore it there. But how you are resonating with this core element of the military ethos, despite being really the exact opposite in terms of your actual lived goals and experiences and tendencies. I have another quote I want to get your thoughts on this one. It's kind of like the other one I just said, but like on steroids. (laughs) Okay. He says, quote, if you're around army guys, every civvy is a dirty, long haired, bone idle, slack, dope smoking civvy. Civvy is short for civilian. Uh, Another person says, coming back to the civilian world, there is no sense of urgency here. People are slack and they're bone idle. They are unmotivated and they don't know how good they've got it. Everything's amazing here, and people are still miserable. Now try making friends with those people. What do you think? Hmm. Well, you gave me two quotes. So, yeah. Uh, what was the first one? Uh, hold on. The first one was about the, the dirty, long hair hippies. There's similar sentiments, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of an exaggeration, you know, black and white thinking, but it, it was really emphasizing this the spirit of, of this thing i can understand what they're saying like this is it, it, i don't really go with like the long hair hippie dirty blah 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 because no. like they're much more i mean military people are much more regimented yeah. they're constantly doing productive work because they're told to but the thing is the upper levels they have to think and give orders and stuff like that but the lower levels the thing is it, they take away the the need to think necessarily i know they encourage critical thinking a lot of the time but when you're being issued commands like it's it can be pretty easy to go with the flow whereas here the commands aren't really coming from anywhere except for maybe a capitalist overlord <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's either gonna be your boss or whatever but like your own life it might be like a nagging spouse or something along those lines but and if you thought a woman there then shake that off it can be a man as well but it's just i don't know i i can see what they're saying because it, yeah people here do seem purposeless and they always have what i call the delayed life plan where when i retire i'll do that i mentioned this with the when we we're talking about the land projects before and internalized capitalism episode again see that yeah yeah where they're just like yeah well, I, yeah I, I, I admire what you're doing and i would totally do it myself but i'm not going to do it for another 40 years yeah. why would i do it now like oh i got i gotta do these other things and you're like okay then and i just those people i kind of just don't engage with as much because I mean I, I try to I guess something Jocko Willink said he was actually a military guy I don't yeah. remember 
remember which, but he was a pretty high, highly skilled person. So yeah. talks a lot about leadership. I only come across him briefly and actually a Peterson interview with him randomly, but he was talking about how if they issue a command and you don't like it and you just flat out refuse, then you're out of the chain of command. You're going to be punished and you have no influence. But if you at least say yes, and you can at least try to influence it. So that's not going to be as bad of an outcome and use your, your status to try to try to make it a better call than the, the stupid one that was been given. And I guess I kind of been think that I do that somewhat when it comes to people that are very caustic or difficult that I don't agree with, but I'll just engage with them and get them to think about stuff. Cause then slowly you can bring them around to a more nuanced perspective instead of the, typically it's black and white thinking that, that leads them to think things are so simple. So right. I guess back to, back to the quotes as it all meandering, obviously, but no, it, it relates. Uh, I guess I can relate to the sleepwalking zombie side of things because people don't have big plans. They don't think that things are very achievable. They think that they have to, they have enough security that they don't want to take any risks. Like that book was talking about the 80, 20 rule again, it was talking about how people who are secure don't take risks, even though they can afford to take the blow if it happens. But people who are failing or, or in a bad situation are more willing to take risks. You would relate with this with gamblers. People who have lost it all try to keep taking bigger risks to try oh, yeah. to win it back, digging an even deeper hole. Yeah, chasing your losses. Exactly. So I think that people here, typically, if they are in a stable situation, it might be bad. It doesn't have to be great, but it's stable. Mm-hmm. They can survive. It's not bad enough. It's not what they have. Uh, they don't have emotional leverage, as Tony Robbins says, where he says, like, you need em- enough emotional leverage. Bad can be bearable in Definitely, but if it's terrible or it gets worse, you can't anymore. And that happened to me before I went to Australia. So I, I just got much worse, more pressure than before, and less supports. And so I just said, you know, I got to get out. It was bad for a long time, but it had to get to terrible in order to spur action. Oh man, it was it was terrible for a long time. I just didn't have any anywhere to move, as far as I could tell. Mm. But the judgment of like the long hair hippies, smoke smoking pot, blah, blah, blah. I don't think smoking pot necessarily has to mean that you're purposeless. Cause like <laughs> do I seem purposeless. You don't seem purposeless. No, I, I have a drive and I'm pursuing these things, but I yeah. also smoke pot. So like, so what? And yeah, uh, you I actually smoke they, when you're working sometimes. I mean, like, well, not because you don't have a job like an employer, but I mean, it, it can be something that you're you're having purpose and using cannabis at the same time. Rarely, I try not to because I'd rather keep a clear head. But like editing the podcast doesn't require that much thought, and I was, yeah. I've done it that when I was doing that before. But uh, yeah, I mean, those those sentiments still resonate somewhat. Yeah, the sentiment of it. It's not the black and whiteness of it. And then there's the, the last part of the quote that uh, everything's amazing here and people are still miserable type of thing. Uh, how do you yeah, make friends I with mean, those people type of thing? I don't a lot of the time. Like I, I try to engage with them, but if they can't, if they're not willing to hear alternate perspectives or they're not willing to consider things, then it's very difficult to keep them around. Yeah. Because obviously I'm going to constantly push on those things and it's going to be annoying and it's it's comforting to be in the mainstream because everything constantly reaffirms you're doing great dude just keep doing it keep going don't question it because everything's built for you but if as soon as you deviate a little bit and this is both men and women it's more punishing and people will not understand or they might attack you or some of your friends might start like gossiping about you for having not conformed so it's I don't remember where I'm going with this. Yeah, it's, well, the idea of being, we started with the idea of being disconnected from people uh, mentally or intellectually, the reverse culture shock. And that relates to the veterans in this quote of, how do I make friends with civilians because they're just intolerable pretty much? Well, 
the thing is the, the things they're focusing on are worthwhile, meaningful things, but they don't feel as bigger of a purpose, I guess at times. Cause it's like they're saving up to buy a car or they're saving up to buy a bigger house or a second property, or they're like working towards a promotion. And it's like, great, good. Like I'm glad you have goals, but it's, just feels so shallow because it's just like, to what end are we doing this? Why are you being, getting a bigger house? Why are you getting a second property so you can continue working and doing it? Like, I don't know. It just feels like there's there's no real fire. Like we were talking about the fox and the hedgehog. It's kind of similar to the experts who think that like learning a language is a lifelong thing. So they have no real purpose. They're not pushing it. They could probably push it at a much faster rate like I see you doing, but they just are not willing to do so. They just, they want to be comfortable and have what they have and not, not bother, which is like, I guess that's a form of happiness and I can't really knock it too much. It's just, it just feels precarious. Like if that one stool of their job just gets kicked out, the one legged stool gets kicked out from under them, then what then? And I think a lot of people are experiencing that exactly right now yeah. where their jobs are being kicked out from under them. And so many things are transitioning in our current society that the concept of transitional injury or transitional stress might be relevant in our transitional times. And it's interesting that we've talked for uh, almost an hour now and didn't even bring up that whole topic. Which, which part? The whole, we're in transitional times and how oh, are, are yeah, these true. Tra- <laughs> I know, it's kind of funny. See, well, I actually have something to say about that, which is related to the quotes you just said too. They're saying that everything is great here and people are not happy. And I think I can relate with that too, because almost by design, I purposefully lived in a bunch of like cheap, dirty, sleeping rough kind of places where like there'd be black mold and really cramped environments. But like you sacrifice that small comfort to be able to experience the environment and such around it. And then you come back here and it's like people have great situations where they don't have to worry about like healthcare and a bunch of other stuff. And they're, well, here at least in Canada, and they're like, ah, it's terrible. I can't believe. So like for me, this whole year has been just another in a series of being waylaid and trying times because like it's not been an easy go this entire time, which I know it's not the worst and I don't want to like either say it's the worst or downgrade somebody else's pain, but it was also painful for me. You were in, you were in transition for years. This, this last year is nothing new. I still am. Yeah. So for me, this is just another in a series of tests that I've got, I'm going to make it through and it's just put your head down and keep doing the work towards your goals and making ends meet. And then hopefully by the end of this, it'll be like a cocoon. I'm going to break out and have exactly what I need to do exactly what I want. And finally the freedom again to do it. Mm. The thing is, it doesn't feel that different to me because like my, my parents and people of their generation are bitching because they can't go to say they can't go on a vacation or they can't go to a, like a, a cruise and you're like, suck it up. Like for everyone, <laughs> <laughs> I swear I can tell like seriously, yeah like for real oh no you can't go on the vacation you have like such a luxurious life this is again the upper class the people that have retired or have money and sure they've earned it but at the same time just like bitching so much about how their freedoms are taken away and like they can't do exactly what they want exactly when they want to do it but where is the freedom when you don't have money when you have to be stuck in a freaking job that you hate that's sucking the life out of you every day and then go home to barely spend time with the people you care about which degrades your relationship and makes it less of support and it just so fucking what that you can't go on a cruise it's just <laughs> so this in this way I can relate with the military sentiment they were talking about and yeah. it just it's another difficulty we have to deal with life is full of them yeah. stop whining to focus on what you can deal with be more stoic well in stoic in the sense of focusing on what you do have control over yes. uh, rather than dwelling on the things you don't have control over exactly I just like to add that in find a goal 
move towards it. Take the steps you can do. Stop sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah. I think this has been a really interesting discussion that uh, reminds me so much of that internalized capitalism episode. Again, if this is kind of resonating, you might really enjoy that episode uh, where we go a lot deeper. I feel like this episode is mainly just like exploring my psychology. <laughs> interesting. Hmm. It really has been. Mr. Counselor. Yeah. I didn't expect it to go that way because I was leading I was leading an episode on transitional injury based on my research on veterans in transition to civilian life and it we do have to tie it back though. Well this is what I was yeah. saying why well okay so one of the points I was going to bring up before when we we first proposed this was when at my time in Australia we never even touched really on that but how I was alone uh, the entire time there and my family was not good at being supportive and they still aren't really and i don't have really any shame in saying that but <laughs> they might get offended i'm sure if they listen to this but they're not going to so like that's the goal that's kind of like this reinforces what i'm saying oh, no. so it's i was there alone from all of my supports and they're at least a 12-hour barrier away from me and i was broke as shit and it's really expensive i couldn't find a job and all the friends I had made were in the hostel, but they were backpackers. So they were not, they were transient as well. So they were there for a few weeks and within a month they were all gone. And the girl I, I knew that invited me to go to Australia, she disappeared within a month. And so I didn't have even her, which I didn't really expect that to necessarily work out. I hoped it would, but it just seemed like a long shot. But overall, I was just basically, there's a, I wrote a post called Sober, Depressed and Alone, which I still look back and think back on fondly in a weird way because I, I took action during that where like there was if you're in a hole doing nothing just going to keep you there you have to do something to get out of it mm. you can't hope that somebody's going to come along and save you basically I was sober depressed and alone because like I didn't know anybody I couldn't afford any alcohol and I was in my one room by myself in a share house where I didn't really know anybody kind of cold because there was no heating because I couldn't afford that either. And it was Australian winter. So then I just, I forced myself to, I say, okay, I just have to put on my shoes. So I do that. Okay. I just have to grab my passport, do that. Okay. I just have to lock the door. Okay. It's locked. I can't go back now. I, and I just have to start walking down the street and I would go to clubs. <laughs> I would go to clubs <laughs> to meet people. This is where pickup came in because it was a kind of a stoic philosophy where it's like, go and take action. You have to take action to get what you want, which could be to like meet somebody you really care about or just connection, I guess at that time. Yeah, yeah. And it, it gave me the tools I needed to, to get out there and get to a place and start talking to people. And it was that particular night was interesting. It actually turned out to be really, really good despite starting so low. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, we could maybe explore your psychology further because it's interesting that I tried to talk about my research and we ended up exploring Phil's psychology. Yeah, somewhat. But I actually, what, the reason I wanted to mention that, but also I wanted to get you to refocus on the thing. So like we started talking about that, but we were way, way off. So transitional stress, how do you think that relates to what we've been talking about? Relates to what we've been talking about. We've been talking about it the whole time. Elaborate. <laughs> Um, how it relates to what in particular? Pick anything. Honestly, we've been talking for like an hour and people who are listening to this are going to be like, okay, we started with transitional stress, but then they end up just talking about like purpose and meaning and military and stuff. So like to remind us what it is. Right. So the idea that in times of transition, like transitioning from the military to civilian life, or perhaps transitioning from a job to a different job or a job to no job or from one country to another country. Or society as normal to a pandemic. Society to the pandemic, whatever the transition may be, it could be even retiring. 
there's always a risk in these times of transition of losing a sense of purpose and belonging. Those are the, the two kind of ingredients that we've been playing with here. Purpose and belonging. You get them when you are in the military. You get them from perhaps a job. You get them from family often or whatever institution you may find those things in. If there's a time of transition, you risk losing both of them. And the isolation purpose one is highly relevant right now in, in our, our societal transition where we are literally being isolated and perhaps our employment is either suffering because we're trying to juggle too many things or just to, to, to cope rather than actually pursuing higher purpose or your job's taken away and there's, there's a lack of purpose. Whatever it may be, these things are at risk. And so when we're talking about mental health in transitional times, we have to look also at the social context, the social health of the environment, and not necessarily blame individuals, uh, but look at the bigger picture, see what's happening, and how do you get out of it? And I think what's that? for that, I think I've given a number yeah. of tools in there to get yeah. out of it. But to me, I think the constant belief is you have to believe that things can be better and that they will be better if you put in the effort. If you don't have that belief, if you don't have agency, then you're lost. And so you really need to start there, I think. Get get a, an idea that like you, your steps can matter both to yourself and to those around you and to reach out to the supports or develop supports in whatever way you yeah. can. Actually, you you helped me through a lot of those times because you have been like one of the only constants. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. You can keep going. No, that's really good. <laughs> what, do you want me just to accompany yeah. you a bit more? Wow, Steve, you're so great. <laughs> and I can see why you became a counselor. Oh, man, you were counseling me all my life. Well, that's not true, but... <laughs> and, and I wanted like a, uh, like a toast, you know, like, uh, like one of those toast moments, you know. Oh, well, I don't have a drink, so like that's not kind. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, well, I don't know. Just I guess if you see somebody struggling, be a Steve and reach out and try to, to give some support and, I don't know, mentor somebody if you can because that helping people, what is it? Somebody said like the most important word besides love is uh, help, I think was the phrase <laughs> that somebody said to me yesterday. And, but through, it's like teaching is learning. Helping is also being helped because you are don't force it on people, but ask them and like prod and see how they can use assistance and, and offer what you can, even if just a listening ear, maybe just, just listen, don't, don't give anything in suggestion because that will help you feel closer and you will be closer because of it. And that closeness, which is that belonging, which saves you from the isolation. And that's the one half of that ingredient, the two ingredients I was talking about before. And, and so if somebody can feel less isolated, then they can gain strength to take that next step to put on the shoes. Like if you felt, you felt 1% isolated versus 1% belonging versus 0%, maybe you can put on those shoes. Maybe you can lock the door. And, and so helping people feel less isolated on an individual level, what can you do? And then there's the whole question of, what can we do on a collective level? And that's a whole bigger uh, political discussion of, of how we facilitate belonging in society. And we can maybe talk about these things in a different episode. Yep. And baby stepping is one that comes to mind. Uh, probably going to do one on that. Well, it's been good. Yep. I don't have a quote to wrap this up. Uh, I don't, I think 
I think that's it. I guess, like I said, just reach out and help somebody keep hope and maintain your agency and, and believing that you can actually affect your and other people's lives, hopefully for the better. And then it will help all of society. Ironically, like we were talking about Peterson last, was it this episode or last, last, I think that's his message all the time too. So yeah, just maintain agency, believe you can have an impact that's positive, even if just in your local community and uh, yeah. do what you can. So, uh, thanks. Thanks Steve for leading us through that one. And hopefully you enjoy this, share it with your friends, and we will see you next time. Yeah, if you know someone who is, uh, is struggling with some of the stuff that we talked about, if it resonates at all, perhaps uh, you know someone who tra- made a transition recently or, or someone with a military background that this might uh, resonate with, feel free to share. Enjoy, check out some other episodes if you'd like, and we'll see you in the next one. Take care. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. That's the amount of energy you want to come up with this with? Is that too much energy?